Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Hi, it's Paddy from Business of Software here. Welcome to the Boss podcast. This week, we've got a great talk from Boss Europe 2018 by Bruce McCarthy, founder of Product Culture. Bruce has sensed a movement in product companies, a movement away from how do we sell more of what we've already built and towards what new value can we provide. He calls this movement product culture. In this talk, Bruce argues that this more entrepreneurial approach walks all over a more corporate execution culture. Bruce will be speaking at Boss Europe 2020 this March in Cambridge, UK, giving a new talk on achieving seemingly impossible outcomes. He'll also be leading the first Boss Masterclass on the 26th of March in Cambridge. That's a full day deep dive into product roadmapping. More details on how to register for both these events can be found at businessofsoftware.eu. As always, if you have any questions or want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter. We're at Boss Conference. Enjoy the talk. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, about a movement that I'm seeing uh, in the world toward product culture. Everybody is thinking about how do I hire a product manager or how do I become a product manager. Um, and it, although it's not just about product managers, it's about um, really the whole complex of related um, uh, functions um, in a good product team. Um, uh, the Product managers are at the center of it. Um, there's this move go movement going on, and my job today will be to try to describe it to you a little bit. This is a work in progress, and I hope that um, you guys will help contribute to it. I'd love your feedback, I'd love your comments, um, and your questions um, at the end. I'm going to hope uh, we have some good amount of time for discussion at the end. Um, I'm going to talk about product culture um, a little bit personally, as well as using some examples of uh, big companies. And the personal part starts with why I quit my job. Um, I've, I realize in retrospect that I kind of joined the product culture movement um, a number of years ago when I quit my job when I um, was working for a big company. Now, I'm really not a big company person. I've worked mostly for smaller companies and startups. Um, and I was working for a startup in the software business um, some time ago. Uh, and we got bought by a much bigger company. And I uh, decided to stick it out and see what's that like and can I figure out how it works. Um, and I did figure out why it works, but there were some things that were bothering me along the way. You'd, a lot of things that you'd expect, bureaucracy, slow decision making, um, the slow drain of IT uh, resources that were gradually being outsourced. But the thing that crystallized for me what the mismatch between the way I think and the way that company um, thought was one day when I was having a meeting with my boss's boss's boss. Um, in, in, in my old little company, when we decided we wanted to do something, um, I, would, um, I would put together a proposal. It would be just a short deck, and I would get together with the, the right few people, and um, we would make a decision fairly quickly um, on what we were going to do. And then we'd slowly get everybody uh, on board. And that had worked for us pretty well. In fact, a um, couple of times I had put together proposals for new product ideas that had turned into multi-million dollar things. So great. So I'm in the new company. I'm going to do the same thing, right? 
not so much. Um, I put together a proposal. I socialized it with a few people that I thought um, would have good feedback on it. And then I sent it up the chain, and I heard nothing. I heard nothing. Weeks went by. And finally, I got into that meeting with, um, with um, that executive. And she said something to me that I will never forget. She said, you have to understand, Bruce, we're just not trying to be entrepreneurial here. And I thought, oh. Um, thanks for clearing that up. Uh, uh, I, I didn't realize that. It, it, it just all of a sudden crystallized for me that I was in the wrong company, that, um, that, that the culture of this company and my culture just did not match, that I thought that I was there as a product manager to create new value, to um, deliver things of value to customers and make the company um, money in return when in fact it seemed like the job was really more of an execution job. It was about um, how can we sell more of what we've already built rather than what new value could we provide. So um, that was my first clue. Um, so I left that company to, uh, to join a, uh, what I called a real software company. And as you can see, I've joined a lot of real software companies um, since then, either as an employee or as a coach and consultant, which is my current business. And I've done it in lots of different um, areas, um, in e-commerce, in, um, in the data business, in, um, in uh, transportation, education, energy, lots of different places, um, telecom as well. And today, as Mark mentioned, I'm the president of the Boston Product Management Association, the largest regional association of product managers anywhere. Um, one word for this phenomenon might be renaissance man. Another one might possibly be dilettante. Um, uh, but along the way, I have seen a lot of different cultures of a lot of different companies. And I have uh, played a lot of different roles, everything from product guy to engineering manager, scrum master, business development, UX, you name it. I have had to either officially do it or fill in when it wasn't, uh, when it wasn't getting done at one uh, company or another. Um, and if this looks familiar um, from your gift bag, uh, this is a book I wrote with uh, a few other gentlemen. Um, it was published by O'Reilly last fall on product roadmaps. Um, this, this book is very much a how-to. It's very much a, um, uh, almost a step-by-step. -step. What are the components? How do you approach a roadmap? Um, how do you develop it? How do you change it? This talk is not like that, not at all. This talk is more about what are the underlying principles. Um, there's been a lot of discussion of values um, over the last couple of days. What is the difference in mindset, in ways of thinking, in assumptions about why we're all here that, um, that a good product organization has, and less about process or tools or uh, org charts? Um, you can find process and tools in here. So in order, to, uh, in order to communicate to you what is a good product culture, I thought we ought to define our terms. And I don't mean to spend too much time on it. But first, let's talk about what is a product. And then let's talk about, well, what do I even mean by culture? So um, what is a product I think actually bears thinking about? I think the definition can sometimes be a bit elusive. Those of us. Um, bordering between um, uh, package software and SaaS are grappling with this every day. So the, my definition of a product really is something that enhances 
human ability, something that makes us better versions of ourselves or more capable. Um, this, is, um, this is a bunch of racing Porsches. Um, and I'm going to, as you'll see from my um, clothing here, I'm kind of enthusiastic about sports cars. Um, and I'm going to use a lot of Porsche examples throughout my um, talk. Um, in addition to this being a bunch of uh, fast cars that help us go faster, um, you'll notice all of the Pirelli yellow and red stickers on the front bumpers of all these cars. The idea, of course, is that if you want to go fast, you need a certain kind of um, tire as well as a certain kind of car. Um, so while, I, while I'm saying that the idea, the, the real essence of a product is something that helps us go faster or reach higher or do better, um, of course, a commercial product also has to be something that you can sell. And it goes back to arguably one of the oldest inventions, the wheel. Um, it's got to be something that, um, that, you get, that you give in exchange for value. Um, and today, of course, you've got to be able to do that at scale. It's something you've got to be able to sell repeatedly. So in my mind, those are the three things. Something that actually enhances human ability that you can sell and that you can sell repeatedly. This, is, um, this repeatedly part is the difference between, in my mind, a product and a service. It's, um, it's productization. Um, the extreme of this build once, sell many times um, phenomenon is software, and especially today's social media apps. We need no, look no further than Instagram that was sold for a billion dollars back in 2012 to Facebook with only 13 employees. That is a, an extreme um, example of um, leverage. And um, you know, to illustrate the point about what is and isn't a, isn't a product, before we even get into the, the culture behind it, um, I was talking at the bar last night, and I made the controversial statement that, in some cases, enterprise software may not actually be a product. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, I work with a lot of software companies, and um, a lot of them, break, a lot of enterprise software companies in particular, break this rule about build once, sell many times. They end up building custom solutions for a small number of huge clients. I see my uh, barmaid from last night listening um, carefully to this part. They, they try to reuse components. They try to build and improve a platform that can be customized and integrated into. Um, but over and over again, they find themselves selling deals that where the, the real value and the real expense um, is in the customization. It's in the layer that gets, the, the, in the bits that get built after the sale rather than, uh, rather than before. And this can make for big checks. I'm not saying it's a bad business model, but it does also make for um, thinner margins and slower growth than something that is um, fully standardized that you really can um, sell many times. I'll give you a concrete example. Um, Huawei, the big um, Chinese telecom equipment manufacturer, realized that um, although they have a roughly $2 billion enterprise software business, that it wasn't a product business because their customers told them so. How did that happen? Um, they, um, they examined their software business. They realized that um, they were going down exactly the road that I described, that almost every deal was a custom set of integrations and workflows. They had some common components, but most of the work was in the customization and in the final product. And mostly it was unique 
in each case. And they said, you know what, this isn't profitable. We're not, we can't scale this way. We're not, uh, we're not making a good enough margin on this. We're going to stop. And so a couple of their larger clients who bought tons of hardware from them sent RFPs and asked them to bid on projects that looked exactly like this kind of phenomenon. And Huawei, got to give them credit, they said, no, we, uh, we're not even going to bid because this is not our kind of thing anymore. We want to have standardized products. And the customers came back to them and said, you do not understand. The reason we buy your hardware is because you do this custom stuff, because you will make it work. And you're the only ones who can. You will bid, and you will win. Uh, and they said, OK, I'm glad you were clear about that with us. And um, they've rethought their strategy on that. So the, if, if Huawei, um, at a $2 billion uh, run rate um, in software, can be thinking, maybe we're not a product business, uh, I would encourage you to think, is this a product business or is this a um, service business? Um, if, if it's a product business, um, well, then I would encourage you not to think about individual customers, but to think about markets, groups of customers, segments who have common needs. So you really can build something standardized um, and configurable for those markets. If you really uh, don't have a product, you can go have coffee, because the rest of this isn't going to make any sense to you. Um, well, OK, so if that's a product, what is culture? And again, I thought, well, this bears a little bit of thinking about. So I looked up the, uh, the word. And I learned a couple of interesting things. Um, philosopher Edward Casey wrote that the very word culture in Middle English meant place tilled. Um, and uh, that it originally came from two different Latin words. And I thought this was very interesting. Colere, to inhabit, care for, till, or worship. And cultus, a cult, especially a religious one. Um, and actually, that really resonated with me because I thought about if, when I thought about it, I realized um, both sides of this um, resonate. It's a place that I work hard to invest myself in and improve, and it's a group that I feel like I'm part of, um, that, that culture phenomenon. Um, and how many people know about the Netflix culture deck? Does anybody know about that? A whole bunch of you, yeah. So they have this whole deck that's up on SlideShare, and they have a new version of it that they've written up that's also publicly available. Um, this definition of culture also really uh, resonated with me. In their mind, in Netflix's mind, culture is what gives them the best chance of continuing success for multiple generations. It's not we have a great product right now. It's we have a culture that helps us have great products over time and helps us continually improve them. So in my mind, that's the real definition of culture, is what is it that's going to support your ongoing success as a team, as an organization? Um, and you notice they mention people in here. It's the last word. Um, uh, they mention technology, but they mention people. Obviously, culture is made up out of people. And it's the sort of the glue that binds uh, people together. So um, I think the, the fundamental question of culture, then, is um, Asking, always asking yourself the question, how can we make our people more awesome? And by people, I mean your employees, your customers, um, your shareholders, and, and the community as well. All right, so let, let's get into the meat of it. What is product culture? Um, if we put these two concepts together, what do we get? Um, I'm going to 
as I said, this is a work in progress, and I appreciate your, um, your, your help here. Um, I'm going to illustrate this by um, starting with the mistakes that I see a lot of software companies make. Um, I've made them. I've um, helped companies uh, try to recover from them. But this is, this is sort of my short list of mistakes not to make. I see them often making mistakes not because everything they do is completely wrong-headed, but because it's a, a, a matter of focusing on the wrong things. Um, if, you've, if there's a, a, um, a slider that you could slide left or right toward one thing or another, they're often slid to one side when they should probably be slid to the other. And um, often, often there's a focus on features rather than what those features do for people. There's a focus on managing um, people and work and, and um, and schedules and budgets rather than on leading um, toward um, outcomes, a focus on job functions and resources rather than on teams, and a focus on um, efficiency and execution rather than on learning as an organization. Um, so I want to talk then, based on these mistakes, on what I think the positive side of all of this is. What are the four principles, in my mind, of product culture? Um, one is to start is to start by leading with a vision of human awesomeness and aspiration and effectiveness. Um, I think that works internally and externally. And I'm going to start with an example from Porsche that uh, hopefully, at least for the car people in the room, um, is uh, is meaningful. Um, also, build small, diverse teams um, to do the actual work. Trust those people on those teams to manage their own work, having given them the right, uh, pointed them in the right direction with your leadership. Um, and then uh, be a learning organization. Learn and improve things continuously. Now, this might all sound like motherhood and apple pie. It might sound like, oh, agile manifesto and lean startup and all these great things. But these are the things um, that I see that companies, as they grow, tend to forget. And so I want to make sure that we don't forget them. Uh, they're the things that, that many startups do naturally. Um, but then as they've been around for five years or 10 years, and they've gone from five people in a room to 20, 40, 100, 200, and so on, these things somehow get lost. So um, let's think of this as, uh, as a reminder. I'm going to walk through each one of these. Um, let's start with leadership. I want to tell um, a Porsche story um, to kick this off. Um, back in 1981, Porsche was coming off of um, four straight years of sales declines. And they had their first unprofitable year in the company's history since, um, since the war. And things were not looking good. Um, they brought on a new CEO, an American who'd actually been born in Germany and whose family had fled after the war, named Peter Schutz. And uh, he led the company for uh, seven years through 1987. Um, and the first thing he did before flying to Germany to um, take the helm of the company was he happened to uh, hear about a race, Daytona, in, this, in the States where Porsche was racing some cars. And he thought, well, I'll go to that. It'll help me get... Um, Get, uh, get started. And he came away really energized and excited because Porsche had uh, won the race. And um, he was thinking, he was a truck, diesel truck guy. And he was thinking, um, 
it's just another transportation automobile company I'm joining, but he got really energized by the racing thing. So when he got to Germany, he brought together the racing team. He said, you know, everybody who's involved in racing, come, we're gonna have a meeting. I wanna hear what's exciting in racing these days. So he asked the question, what's, what's, what's coming up in racing? And they said, well, uh, the biggest race of the year is 24 hours at Le Mans is in six weeks. And he's like, great, what's our plan? And they said, after a little bit of hesitation, well, actually we are entering the race with a couple of our regular production cars that have been modified to run for 24 hours. Um, but uh, they're probably, and they, they'll, you know, they'll do well, but they're probably not really competitive. There's really no chance at all that we can win the overall event with these cars. And after a minute of thinking, he said, let me make something perfectly clear. As long as I am in charge at this company, we will never enter a race without the intention of winning. Now, he didn't say you must win, but he said the intention of winning, and that's an important distinction. He was laying out the goals. He was laying out the objective. He was um, leading by saying, this is, this is what we should be shooting for. And actually, he got the reaction he was hoping for. The team got really excited. They'd been kind of like phoning it in. There was a morale problem in the company um, based on all of the downturn that they had seen, and they were re-energized by this. Um, and they went away and they came back with a plan, and it was kind of a harebrained scheme, actually. Um, they said, well, we're gonna take a couple of chassis that we had mothballed from previous races. They were winners, but the engines are obsolete, so we're gonna replace them with a laboratory experiment racing engine we've been working on that's never been tried anywhere in, in the world um, on a real racetrack. Um, but it's our best shot, we've got six weeks. Um, and he said, great, do it. And the team got really energized, they pulled together, they, uh, they, they got the race cars ready, and word got out, and he started getting phone calls from race car drivers who wanted in. Famous people. Um, and so he thought, all right, th we're, we're helping out this morale situation. Well, um, long story short, they won um, against all expectations. Um, and not only did they win that year, but they won every year that he was CEO, seven years in a row, beating Ferrari's record of having won Le Mans six times. Um, they ran this ad after 1983's race where they, um, they won nine out of the top 10 slots in, in position. Um, I thought that was, that was fun, right? Um, now, uh, why does this matter? You know, why, why does it matter that they won all of these races? Uh, it's, it wasn't just a publicity stunt. It had a huge effect on the morale of the team and on the image of the company, and it had an effect on sales. Every year that Peter was CEO, sales went up in the US, even though US people have probably never heard of Le Mans. Um, until the stock market crashed in the US in 1987, and then there was a downturn. And of course, at that point, um, as corporations sometimes do, um, the board of Porsche fired Peter and put in charge a finance guy. And you can see what happened over the next few years while he was in charge. Um, they've come back since then, and they're doing, doing quite well with what I think is a really great product culture. I read the autobiography of Peter Schutz, and I read it because I'm a car guy and I thought it would be interesting. But I really, really um, dug the story about, um, about a product culture and about leading by, um, by a vision of what can be accomplished as people um, when we focus as a team 
And Porsche seems like a, 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 good, um, a good analogy of a product that helps make people awesome. You can win at the track. You can buy cars that are very similar and engineered by the same team for yourself. Does this apply to high tech? Does this apply to the business of software? I think so. Um, some of the most successful companies um, in the software business also tend to think different about what is the purpose of our product and what is the purpose of our work. Um, they tend to think about empowerment of, um, of the individual, of the user, of the customer. And they um, use examples of um, admirable, famous people who arguably are pretty awesome people. And um, they're saying, um, you, can, you can be like them. Um, the guys at um, Onboarding Blog said something really smart, um, user onboarding. People don't buy products. They buy better versions of themselves. And that's really what you're selling, is you're selling a power-up, if you will. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, this looks like a very cool product. MP3 player, it's got uh, fun colors and stripes on it, and it looks like, um, it looks like they did a terrific job with, with the design. It's, a, it's, it's probably a great product. But who's cool in this picture? It's the guy. The product is way over, like almost in the corner. But we all, we all know what the product is. But it's, it's more about how cool is it to have a 1,000 songs in your pocket than it is about the product being cool. So I mean, the iPhone does, I mean, the iPod does that. It, it makes us cool by giving us a 1,000 songs in our pocket. Um, I know how it feels. <laughs> Evernote um, allows us to remember everything. Um, LinkedIn helps us be great at what we do. In a product culture, success, people, um, a successful product is successful by making customers uh, more awesome. <laughs> um, somebody needs to work on better um, sticky tape, I think. The thing is, it's blue tack, and my wife. <laughs> Put blue tack on all the LEDs and bloody lights in the uh, mm. hotel room so we can actually sleep. Mm. So something's got to give. Well, it's it's useful for one thing, at any rate. So Jason Fried at Basecamp, um, one of my favorite um, success stories of a small software company, um, said in a tweet years ago, um, I'll, "Here's what our product can do versus here's what you can do with our product. They sound similar, but they're very different. There's a huge difference in meaning in culture." in why we're here. Are we focused on features and specs? Are we focused on revenue? Or are we focused on making people awesome? That's, that's um, the first question in product culture, um, in my mind. Basecamp, um, everybody knows uh, the story. They started off as a consulting company, as a service company. They built this tool for themselves and their clients, Basecamp, uh, as a project <coughs> management tool. And it soon took off. And became, they renamed the company after it. Um, they stopped doing consulting. Um, and they're still small in terms of numbers of people, but they are hugely, hugely profitable because they have millions of users all around the world. And Jeff Bezos invo um, invested in the company um, in 2006. So um, that's, that's, that's leading with a vision of human awesomeness. What about the building of small, diverse teams side? Well, this is where the link with. Agile practice comes in. I, I hate to say it, 
I'm an agile, agile um, advocate. I, I work with companies on their agile practice all the time. But it feels like the movement that started for agile has become a process, has become a set of rules. And I want to get back to basics here about uh, what's really important about agile. And I think it's the teams. I think it's the small, cross-functional <laughs> teams that are about getting shit done. Um, and for me, the analogy is the pit crew um, in racing. The pit crew is a small group of people with specialized skills that have to apply them in essentially an emergency situation that comes up every few laps. They don't know what the car is going to need when it comes in. It might need tires or fuel or a new driver or something might be broken. Um, but they've got to respond, and they've got to respond quickly. And they, uh, they practice that work, and they practice um, and drill, and they keep the team together over time. And Peter Schutz tells a story about the, his first time actually being um, in the pits while this was happening. He could see all the activity and the excitement, and he thought, this is great. I'm going to get in on the action. And he shows up in his suit and tie. And the first thing that happens when the car comes in is that the pit boss says to him, you, go get that tire. And of course, the, it's a big racing tire, and it's covered with grease. But Peter follows orders, and he, uh, and, he, and he brings the tire over. And he had to throw away the suit in the end. But, um, but that illustrates the rank doesn't matter, hierarchy doesn't matter, role doesn't matter. What matters is the team and the team's objectives. And right at that moment, it's all about seconds ticking while they try to get the car back on the road. Um, now, I'll, um, I think that's a great analogy for agile teams. And I'll tell another um, Peter story about that. In 1982, the second year that they went back to Le Mans, um, they wanted to do better than they had the year before. And so they purpose-built some new cars from the ground up, chassis, uh, engine, the whole deal. And um, they did pretty well. In fact, um, they, during the last three laps, they were so far ahead of the pack that they uh, had these cars drive in formation, numbers one, two, and three. And that's how they crossed the finish line. And uh, the press surrounded uh, Peter and the team afterwards and said, how did you do this? Completely new cars, untried, had never been racing before. And he said, you guys are seeing this all wrong. Sure, the cars are new, but the team is the same team that won last year. And that's the point. That's the point. It's, it's about... Um, it's about the team. That should be your atomic unit in, um, in a growing software company. It is not the individuals, not the people, but not the products, but the teams. Um, my advice and summary on teams is um, a, few, a few key points. Number one, start with that leading with a vision of human awesomeness. Be clear and consistent about what is this team's mission. In what way are we making people awesome on this team? Um, hire for diverse skills and points of view. Teams that are subject to groupthink are because it's all a bunch of engineers. So you want cross-functional in terms of role. Have the UX people and the testers and the product people and, and everybody on the team. But also in terms of mindset and point of view. Have somebody on the team who is the questioner, like who says, wait, wait, why are we doing this? What is the, what is the point of this? Have the, uh, the, the oddball. Um, on the team, and keep teams together over time. A lot of, this is where I see the, the stumbling block most often, is people think, oh, we've got a new project, 
all right, we need to reform the team to be perfectly uh, designed for this project with exactly the right expertise, technically or market-wise. And of course, then they get into the optimization trap of, well, actually, we also need that expertise on this other team, so we can have that person split their time, right? Um, or maybe they could split it you know, four ways or eight ways or something like that. Um, so I, I say no, keep the teams together over time. Um, research has shown that the, that, um, that the real problem with teams is not that they get stale or are subject to groupthink. The real problem with teams is that they just don't have time to get practice together enough as a team to get really good, to get really fast, to develop those muscles for working together with those particular individuals like a pit crew. Um, so if you have new projects, which we all do, you have new products, whatever, um, bring the work to them. Establish a team, let them practice, and change what it is they're working on rather than reform the teams. Also, um, and this is important, um, split the teams um, before they get big. It turns out, who's heard of the Amazon two pizza rule? Yeah, a lot of people, right? So how, many, how many people uh, can you feed on two pizzas? It's, it's like a... It de yeah, it depends on how hungry they are, right? Um, but it's, it's a maximum of like six, I think. Um, and, it, if, and that's if they're not that hungry. Um, and there's a, there's a reason for that. Um, the, uh, the, of course, everybody knows the number of communication nodes in any system increase exponentially with the number of nodes in the system. So as soon as you start to get above seven or eight people, you start to just explode the number of people you need to coordinate with, and it just creates a lot of communication overhead. The Mythical Man Month wrote about that back in the 70s. Um, but also there's this phenomenon of social loafing where um, people actually don't pull as hard on the rope. There's, a, there's an experiment on that if they know that they've got a bunch of other people pulling on the rope as well. Um, and there's um, a feeling sometimes of isolation in the crowd. But I'm, I'm all about hard data. Um, the why is interesting, but give me the actual facts. And there's these guys from this company called Flow, which is a project management tool. And they can actually track the number of tasks done, not per individual, but by the team as a whole, as an output of work, based on the size of the team, based on their entire user base. So and this graph is, is sobering. As you approach five people, the addition of an additional person to the team adds nothing in terms of the team's output. Nothing. You might as well just start a new team with person number six or seven because you're not going to get anything out of them if what you're after is actual um, things getting, uh, getting done. So there's, there's, there's um, real, real science or data behind that. Let's talk about, okay, you've established these teams. You've given them a mission. Um, trust. Yesterday, I asked Tim Barker, uh, who's at Tim's uh, session yesterday afternoon? Most people? Yeah, terrific session. I, the question I asked him was, how did you trust your people to, um, to know what to do, to do the right thing, when you had an emergency situation? You had a, a hard, immovable deadline and a really difficult task. Um, and he said, you know what? We were all in this together. Um, we had total transparency. Um, the, the goal was absolutely clear. So he was, um, 
He was uh, leading with a vision of where we needed to be. He, was, he built the team intentionally with the right culture. He let the people who maybe had terrific skills but didn't have the right mindset go. And he trusted them um, to get the work done because he knew they all had that context. So um, I'll go back to Peter um, Schutz, the CEO of Porsche again, and, and the harebrained scheme that they came back to him with for how to win that first race at Le Mans. After he set them the goal and he saw the grins around the room, he said, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to win this race. I was in trucking before this. You guys know how to do this. So you go off and think about it and come back and tell me what your plan is. He wasn't involved in coming up with the plan. They came back to him, told him what the plan was. We're going to take these old things and these new things. We're going to smash them together and we're going to hope for the best. And he said, great, do it. He trusted them. Having made it clear what the goal was, he trusted them to, uh, to run with it. That right there is an important essence of how you get engagement from your team. I often work with CEOs who complain that they don't get full engagement from the team, that the team is just sort of showing up to work and looking at their to-do list and getting things done. They're not focused on the common goal. The, uh, they're focused on specific outputs rather than on the outcome. And I think the trick to avoiding that problem is not telling them what the outputs are, just telling them what the outcome that you're looking for is. That trust that they will figure out the best way to do it is, um, is where it's at. And uh, this may be one of the hardest things, I think, for entrepreneurs who started their own thing and have had to survive by their own wits and their own hard work now they've got to trust other people to do that stuff. Um, uh, here at the Barbican last fall, um, uh, I sat through a, uh, a talk by Leah Hickman of um, Silicon Valley Product Group, a colleague of Marty um, Kagan's. And um, she said at this uh, event, Mind the Product, thank you very much, Martin, um, that the most critical shift in thinking toward a proper um, product uh, company's culture is this thinking of, of switching from tasks to goals and switching from outputs to outcomes. Outputs would be things like we got to finish this such and such redesign or we got to build this feature. Outcome is why are we doing that? What is the reason, what is the goal we hope will be accomplished if we deliver that? Well, let's concentrate on that. Maybe there's a faster, easier way. Or maybe if we have to make some compromises along the way, we'll know which compromises we can make and which ones we can't because we're constantly focused on the outcome rather than just getting too done on the output. Dan Pink, um, one of my favorite authors, uh, wrote this book, Drive, which is all about how, um, what motivates us, um, said that control leads to compliance, whereas autonomy on methods um, uh, leads to engagement. People invest in reaching your goal if you're clear about what that goal is and you give them the freedom to figure out how to do it. Again, I want to give you some data. I don't want to just make these claims. Um, Deloitte did a study, um, and they asked a whole bunch of questions, and they divided up the respondents into two camps. Those that worked in companies with a lot of flexibility in terms of work hours and location, companies like Wade's company uh, that we heard from um, this morning, Zapier, um, versus companies where they didn't have that freedom, where they were told where and when to get their job done. 
And it turns out that there is a huge, like three times difference um, in how invested those people are in um, the reputation of the company. Because the company trusts them, they invest in the, uh, in the company. Uh, and I also want to give you some, some examples. Um, one of my favorite examples, um, uh, Aaron Sconard, CEO of Pluralsight, um, who just went public last week, um, they have a very open, very um, um, trusting culture. He said, the first rule, he said, we only have really two rules at Pluralsight. We don't have a lot of policy manuals and procedures and rules. We really just have two. Uh, the first rule is be kind, courteous, and respectful for those you engage with. And that's customers as well as uh, employees and partners and everyone. Um, and the second rule is to do what's right for the company and for the customer. And if you keep those two rules in mind, I don't need to give you more rules than that. I trust you to use your judgment. Um, uh, we don't need a lot of command and control in that situation, as long as we've provided you uh, some clear guidelines. Um, and a real practical example, this is more, probably my favorite company ever. Does anybody know Supercell, the guys that make uh, Boom Beach and Clash of Clans? Yeah, tiny little company, um, or at least they started that way. Um, their CEO, um, Ilka Pananen, calls himself the weakest CEO in the world because all of their um, products are managed by small four to five person teams. The entire business named after, is, is named after this concept. The entire company is, um, is built of these cells of small autonomous teams. He doesn't give them orders about what to do or how to do it. He basically says, you guys come up with a game, figure out how to build it, figure out how to market it, figure out how to make money on it. Um, he gives them that control. And the result has been just explosive growth. They're making $2.5 million uh, every day. And they've been described as the uh, fastest growing company ever. Now, you can see that it's not like they don't share anything. You can see from this photo that they have a lot of feedback sessions internally. Um, they, uh, there is a strong culture there tying them together. But the culture is about who we are, why we're here. It's not about these are the procedures to follow. Uh, the Netflix deck, again, is really um, my favorite quote from it is, you want to provide, as leaders, context rather than control. So let's talk about the last principle, learning um, and improving continuously. Got to have a Porsche example. Um, see the duct tape on the fender here? That's important. It, uh, a couple of years into their fabulous run at Le Mans, um, McLaren uh, of, of um, Formula One fame approached them and said, um, could you build engines for our cars? We'll provide the chassis. You, you, um, you build the engine. So they had this partnership going for a few years. Their first race together did not go well. The car was overheating badly, and as a result, it uh, wasn't, um, wasn't looking competitive. Um, so the Porsche engineer on site said, OK, I want you to cut a hole in the body right here, and we're going to rig up an air scoop from cardboard and duct tape. And um, the, the um, McLaren guy was, unfortunately, their chief chassis designer. 
and he freaked out on him. He said, you want to cut a hole where and make, make an air scoop out of what? You're not touching my car. And of course, they didn't do well. They, uh, they, didn't, they didn't cut the hole, and they, they lost. But this just illustrates the difference between a, an organization that's focused on um, making everything perfect um, versus an organization that's willing to learn on the fly, that's willing to experiment. Um, what Peter said about that um, was that um, the sooner you get something on the road or the track, the sooner you'll know where, where the challenges are. It's about, it's about testing. It's about not worrying about being perfect. It's about continuous um, development and innovation. And again, if, you, if you're a, a devotee of the lean startup, this will just sound like, a, well, of course. But this is the sort of thing that a lot of companies, they, they, uh, they start off strong. They do a lot of learning and pivoting. But once they hit on something that's halfway successful, they're thinking, OK, we've got the formula. No more of that. We just need to execute. We just need to be more efficient in delivery and building more of these widgets. But constantly focusing on how do we raise the game? How do we improve things? How do we, um, how do we uh, continue to, to make people even more awesome, our people and our customers, is where um, long-term success comes from. And um, a quote from Ferry Porsche, the son of the founder, um, struck me in this, in this way. When asked by a reporter what was his favorite Porsche of all time, he said, we haven't built it yet. We're constantly raising the bar. It's not about looking backward toward our successes. It's about what, how much better can we do? Now, in the software business, of course, the, um, the poster child for iterative testing is Facebook. They, um, no, no two people are experiencing the same Facebook because they're constantly A-B testing and um, customizing and, and trying different things to see if they can move the needle in engagement to keep us looking at our phones. Um, and um, there's a little bit of science behind that. They actually, they use this tool called Gatekeeper, which I only learned the details about recently. And it allows them, if they've got some change that they want to try out or some new feature, to control how many people see it and who sees it and how much um, interaction they have with it so that they can measure, is this helping or is this hurting? Is this making things more or less um, awesome? Um, now, you might be saying, well, that's great if you're Facebook. Um, or Porsche, and you can you have huge budget, and you can do all of these great things. Um, but what about what about my company? And I'll I'll tell you a personal story around that. Um, after my little um, software startup was acquired by the big company, um, we had a little bit of a honeymoon period of about a year where we still got to operate kind of the way we had before. And I had another um, idea for a product that we were able to put into, into practice. Um, we'd, um, we'd built what, what are called custom data portals. They, are complete, they were completely custom, ground up implementations of essentially a vending machine for sales leads for your sales force. The person could log in and get access to only their territory and only their target market. So great. We built six of them. And we were losing money every day on them because they were completely custom. Everyone had its own stack. Um, and there were constant change requests. And things were breaking um, here and there. And we, just, we, and we hadn't figured out how to charge correctly for it until I started interviewing the customers and the uh, leads in the pipeline. And I realized that actually um, 
80% of their needs were the same. We'd been building them as purpose-built um, tools, but if we were to look at the core use cases, they were all kind of the same. So we set aside, we stopped selling it for the time being, set aside those six, and built a standardized product that did most of what they wanted and started selling that instead. And instead of an unprofitable one or two million dollar business, we started selling a lot of these very quickly and implementing them like that. Uh, and we had a nine million dollar business in just a matter of a few months. So was that first attempt a failure? No, I don't think so. That first attempt was essentially a prototype. We learned from it. We learned what was necessary. And we figured out how we could serve that need in a more productized fashion. So I, I, I think we need to judge everything that we're doing in a learning organization by uh, not whether every individual attempt at anything was successful, but by whether we're learning um, the path. Are we f discovering the way to get to our ultimate vision? Are we closer than we were before? Because now we know um, where we need to go. So this, this, is, this is my summary chart. These are the four, four main principles I would, uh, would want to leave you with. Um, and I want to give you an example of, of all four of them coming together, um, because I do think they reinforce each other. Um, and, and picking and choosing among them, I, or prioritizing them among them, I don't think um, really works. Um, this is a, a screenshot, a little blurry, of a, um, of a conversion uh, funnel report that I devised oh, approximately 1,000 years ago. Um, I worked for an enterprise software company, and um, we had no reporting mechanism. People had to sort of build their own um, uh, for e-commerce sites. It was an e-commerce um, uh, platform. And um, you could build a store with our tools, but you were on your own in terms of knowing anything about what was going on in your, in your business. So, um, the, and it turned out our customers didn't have a good solution for that. Um, so the vision for what we needed to do to fix that situation was very clear. Our customers needed to watch their businesses grow. They needed to see them grow in close to real time. So we had a vision. We built a small um, cross-functional team. It was me as the product guy, one engineer, one UX person, just the three of us to start. Um, we had full autonomy on methods. Our original approach was going to be to build something internally, um, purpose-built. But actually, I started having conversations with uh, business intelligence solutions with robust OEM um, programs. And it turned out that we could build our own data warehouse, but then put this BI tool on top of it, and we could white label it um, under our own brand. And that was a much faster path to market. I demoed reports on week two um, to, my, uh, to my boss, and he, and he was convinced like that, because I was getting to the goal of making um, making things visible rather than sticking to, well, we, we have to build this, of course. That's, uh, that's our job as a uh, product development organization. And the, the first reports that we built were wrong, but we learned from that. We kept showing them to customers, and they kept giving us feedback. Um, and we kept refining them. We kept, the, we kept the, um, moving the bar up on how much value we were providing and how, how we were able to let the people in charge of the e-commerce uh, operation show off the success of their business. We were helping make them awesome. Um, and we got top marks from customers and analysts over time for being the experts in the e-commerce business, not just in the software. 
and we were acquired by Oracle um, a few years later for a billion dollars because we kept that number one ranking with customers and with analysts by continuously uh, pushing the envelope. So the, the thought I really want to leave you with um, is I think I've come down to my definition of product culture is that it's a growth medium. It's, it's what we call the necessary conditions, a label for the necessary conditions for sustained commercial innovation. It's the, um, you know, the, the petri dish, the culture in which things grow. <coughs> Good things, not fungus. Um, but you might be asking yourself, well, if I don't have that, what do I do? Is change even possible? And um, I think that's a reasonable question. Uh, I would first, I would point to the example of Peter Schutz, that's him, um, with, um, with the Porsche 911 Cabriolet from uh, the mid-1980s, when, um, when all the survey data they got from customers was, your cars are too expensive and too unreliable, he decided to build a convertible instead. Because he didn't want to make people more um, reliable um, or cheaper, he wanted to make them more awesome. And that worked. Um, they, that became a staple in their portfolio um, thereafter. But I want to give you a software example as well. Um, I um, know the guys at Vistaprint in the US very well. And um, they were a small shop. Uh, they do, does anybody know Vistaprint? They do business cards? Yeah. Um, they were a small shop initially, and they've grown really fast and really enormously. They have thousands of employees. Uh, they're headquartered in Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, and they had grown into a bunch of separate silos that really um, didn't work together effectively. They had an enormous engineering team, and they had a comparatively small product management team, that's these guys right here, trying to figure out how to work with them. Um, and they were really not making any progress. There were projects that were just languishing that seemed like they ought to be straightforward, but were really not making any progress. After struggling for a couple of years, they finally got the formula right. It took a bunch of elbowing um, and putting together the right cross-functional teams based on these product um, guys um, and, and UX people and um, full-stack developers instead of most of the IT team was built in layers um, for different parts of the stack. But once they kind of got the rhythm, once they got the right cultural norms into place and they got permission to, um, uh, gave themselves permission um, to do it right, they started really, um, really delivering. Um, they wanted, they'd been wanting to redo their site search capability, their cross-catalog search, for about 18 months and had just not really been able to get any traction on it. But once this team hit its stride and they, took, they decided to take that project on, they got it done in three weeks. So there's a huge amount of productivity when you bring these um, principles together. So um, I think sometimes it's good to illustrate positive points with negatives. So I'm going to tell you if you're thinking that you're suffering from poor product culture or that you've lost something, there are some things I want you to stop doing. I want you to um, quit focusing on features or revenue. Those things will take care of themselves if you focus on making people awesome, your people, customers, shareholders, the entire community. Um, and if you quit managing, telling people what to do and start leading, telling them where you want them to get to, what you want them to accomplish. And quit hiring resources, build the right kind of teams. Teams are 
more effective than the sum of the people on them if they are correctly constituted. And adding more people to a highly effective team actually usually slows them down. And um, quit focusing on making sure everything you do is successful and instead focus on what do we learn from that that we could do better or different um, next time because that will illuminate the path um, and make our overall operation more, um, more successful. In the end, um, uh, if we go back to um, an agile principle again, Mike Rother, author of Toyota Kata says, um, the competitive advantage of an organization is not so much in their products. It's in the ability of the organization to understand the conditions and create fitting smart solutions. That reminds me very much of um, Tim Barker's presentation yesterday where he, he had a product. It was a great product. Unfortunately, the partner he was depending on for the data for that product went away and he needed to rethink. So the first thing he did was, let's get the team right and let's focus the team on the right culture and make sure that we, can, uh, we have the right people to be fixing this situation because it is about the people. And I'd, I always say that the hardest thing about the technology business is people. Um, so summary slide, lead with a vision of human awesomeness, build small diverse teams, trust those teams to manage their work, and learn and improve continuously. I'll pause for people who want to take pictures. And um, then um, if this has made any sense to you, um, or some sense but not everything, I really do want your thoughts and your comments. As I mentioned, this is a work in progress. I'm trying to describe what I think is a movement um, in, in the industry. Um, and I'm sure that I don't have it complete or correct or that I don't have all the, um, the right examples. So I'd invite you to join in um, on the work at my website, productculture.org. And um, I have a nano letter, newsletters are too long and boring, um, that you can subscribe to called One Thing on Product Culture. It's once a week and it's meant to fit uh, all above the screen, one concept. Um, and um, on that website, um, after everything that I write, I invite people to say, well, you got it wrong this way, or here's my example, or here's my counterexample, or you forgot. And that's what I'm looking for from you guys. So that's all I have. I'm happy to take, um, take questions. Questions, Laura, you can have the Peldy mic, Pavlos. Hi, okay. Um, so our product is going through a lot of changes this year and this weird thing has happened where sometimes it can become a demotivator where people are so focused on what it's gonna look like a year from now. They, I keep hearing this like, this mindset of people waiting, which is not cool, we gotta sell what we have now. And after listening to your presentation, I feel like what we're doing wrong is like the focusing on the features instead of the people outcome, but I'm not sure how to put that into practice. Yeah, I think there's two pieces actually. You might be right about focusing on the features. What does the product look like when it's fully fe featured out, right? Um, there's a great human temptation to think you know the answer, to think you know what it should be like in a year. And when you're thinking a year out or more, I would be thinking about not what does the product look like, but what does the customer look like when they are happy and successful? And um, then I would encourage you to be thinking just 
uh, very short term in terms of what does the product look like, in terms of what's the first most important problem we need to solve if we're going to make the customer grin like that, if we're going to make them feel really awesome. Let's solve them one at a time. You probably do have a list. That's OK. But make it a list of problems to solve for that customer, not a list of features. Because you're probably going to discover after you put out the first feature that solves the first problem that let's suppose that you were totally right actually about that and your first attempt solves the problem pretty well. Chances are actually often against that. But let's suppose what you're going to get for feedback from that is what we really need next is, and it's probably not the second thing on your list. It might be number seven, or it might be something you totally didn't even think of. So designing your future state is actually often wasteful um, because you, you're assuming you know things that you don't really know. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's the testing aspect of it, too. Learn as you go. Thank you. Pavlos. I, I really love your message of, uh, first of all, thinking of how to make people awesome. And uh, we're in the business of making doctors awesome in what we do. But it's a conservative business. Yes. So uh, any advice on, like, okay, you, you can at some level focus on doing the, the awesome thing, and then you run into the people in the company who say, yeah, but no one will pay for it, and it doesn't fit a product line. We have the classic, like, adoption curve. Right. issues internally. Right, right. Any advice how to promote that culture in the company or how to uh, nurture the product despite a, a little bit conservative culture? Yeah, uh, so you're saying the customers are conservative by nature, doctors. Both the, Both the market and the, we're a large company. Right, and you're a large company, so it's, people have a conservative mindset there too. So I would do a couple of things. One is, can you find some... Um, some example doctors who have achieved or are excited about the possibilities of achieving a level of awesomeness that other doctors might aspire to. There's nothing like seeing that somebody else has done it to make people feel not that it would be awesome, because they probably would believe that too. Uh, they would probably believe that anyway, but that it is possible. Um, I, I see this internally with engineering and product teams as well. Once. Uh, once one team tries a new technique, the other teams say, oh, that looks good. Maybe, maybe we could try that, you know? That seems, that, seems, that seems successful. But not until then. If you just tell them, you should try this, they're, eh, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical. I think real-world examples of an awesome customer can be inspiring internally and externally. Um, there's nothing like um, when someone says, I don't think I believe that's a real phenomenon. There's nothing like showing them a real example. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.